1: Ah, Hurtel Show, it's a Monday, April the eighteenth year of our Lord 2022. Hope you all had a great weekend. Hope you had a good Easter weekend for those of you that observe that. For everybody else, hope yours was well. Hope our Jewish friends enjoyed their Passover, had a good time of remembrance. And wherever you and yours are across the street and around the world, no matter what you celebrate or what you are eating over the weekend. We hope you enjoyed it and had a good one. Let's get back to work. Lots of noise to turn down in the news cycle going on. We're going to cover a lot of different things today. Uh, Governor Abbott down in Texas has been doing some very high-profile stuff like inspections on the border, like sending busloads of migrants and illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C. We're going to touch on that. How legal was it? Was it a good idea? We'll touch on all that in just a little bit. Also, uh, we'll go back over and check on the Russia War of Aggression in Ukraine, the Russian foreign ministry is not happy that people don't like what they're doing. And because we say so, tough. They're also banning a bunch of people from the UK, basically the entirety of the UK government. We'll touch on that in just a little bit. We always end on a good or happy note. Great story. A couple in Texas who started a charity where they round up old RVs that are still roadworthy and usable and get them to homeless vets. Great story out of Texas. Our guest today, Georgia Gilholy. Uh, one of our great UK Young Voices contributor, we're going to talk about a really important overseas subject that doesn't get talked about enough in the Western media, especially American media, India. India is a vital player. It's the world's largest democracy. They are somebody that the United States foreign policy wise across the last couple of presidents has spent a lot of time courting and improving our relationships with. They also have very deep relationships with Russia, also constantly in conflict with Pakistan. They're also kind of stuck in the middle with the expansion of China and their Belt and Road initiatives. India is a vital piece of the geopolitical puzzle, So how does the Russia-Ukraine war spark that? What's going on in Pakistan? How does their standing with China deal with that? How does it deal with they wanting to be with the U.S. aligned on certain things, but their entire military and a lot of their infrastructure being based around their aid from Russia? These are complicated things. We're going to talk to Georgia Gilholy about these issues. It's very important understanding how the world's working right now. That'll be our guest today. But first, let's start with some domestic politics um the washington post had a piece and then it got popular and then it went viral it was their most read piece over the easter weekend uh the top 10 democratic presidential candidates for 2024 ranked aaron blake wrote this staff writer for the washington post uh you can go through it just real quickly so that you understand what we're dealing with let me read the important uh, little blurb here Uh, From the Washington Post, Democrats need to decide what this means for them. Certainly, there's an argument to be made that the best path forward is to pick a different nominee. But if Biden is intent on running again, do you allow a competitive primary that could put the choice in the voters hands and risk damaging the incumbent president, a la Jimmy Carter versus Ted Kennedy in 1980? Do you subtly suggest to Biden that it might be better to pass the torch and hope that works? Or do you just hope things with his presidency get better? These very important questions will likely have to wait until after Democrats see how the 2020 midterm elections pan out. Not looking good for our Democratic friends, but we'll deal with that another time. But in the meantime, we've seen the kind of jockeying you might expect in such a scenario again. Biden hasn't even been totally explicit that he will run again. Hold hold that thought. We're going to we're going to knock that one out here in just a second, which would seem to give the green light to others preparing for the case that he won't. With all this in mind, we've changed our approach to our quarterly presidential rankings, quarterly presidential rankings <sighs> in previous installments we've excluded biden from the list suggesting we'd probably have a true primary only if he didn't run but we've increasingly needed to consider the possibility that if he does run he wouldn't have the field to himself and that he might not be the most likely nominee all things considered let's just stop right here uh the top 10 for what it's worth for the purposes of this conversation as laid out by aaron here uh number 10 uh aoc alexandrio asacio cortez Number nine, Gavin Newsom, that's the governor of California, Cory Booker, Senator Sherrod Brown, Senator Uh, Roy Cooper. That is the governor of North Carolina, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, both U.S. senators, both 2020 candidates, along with Cory Booker. Uh, Number three, Vice President Harris. She's in third. Number two, Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary. He loves trains. And of course, number one, President Biden. Folks, if there's breath in his body, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is going to be the 2024 nominee for the Democratic nomination for president. Just turn all this noise down for a second. Let me repeat that real slow, using small words for the folks in Overflow and those of you from Logan. If there is breath in his body, Joe Biden is going to be the 2024 nominee for the presidency for the Democratic Party, and he should be. Only Joe Biden could put together the coalition that won in 2020, and only Joe Biden can put together a coalition that can win in 2024. I don't care how bad his approval ratings are. I don't care how old he gets. As long as he is vertical, he's going to be the nominee. You don't think he waited this long just to be a one-termer and done, do you? He's not going to step aside. He's not going to pass the torch. You folks are kidding yourself. Unless something catastrophic, God forbid, happens to the president, He's not going to stand aside. He's going to run. So now what do we do with the rest of this list? Frankly, this list only works if you pretend 2020 didn't happen. Uh, Let's just look at this list. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is in the number two slot. Well, you remember him. He almost or maybe won Iowa. We talked to our friend John Deeth about that a while ago. By the time they got it rounded up, we were already on the other things and nobody cared, but he was doing really well until people in the Democratic Party that were overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly progressive and liberal got a say in things. And then his candidacy abruptly came to a screeching halt. Uh, Vice President Harris, obviously, she would be next in line. She's the vice president, after all. She didn't even make it in the calendar year 2020 with her presidential campaign. That wasn't Republicans and that wasn't the media and that wasn't people like me that did that. That was Democratic primary voters that rejected her, even with a whole lot of establishment support, even with a candidacy that looked good on paper, even with a lot of fundraising before the campaign began. And she didn't even make it into 2020 at all. So has something really changed with Vice President Harris that she's that much stronger of a candidate now? I don't know. They're constantly having to drop stories about how this is going to be her issue to shine on or this is going to be her moment to shine. I don't know. What about the uh, plethora of U.S. senators that have ran in the past and may want to run again? The running joke, of course, in the Senate is that all senators are just people waiting for their turn to be president. And historically, almost none of them ever get to be a chance to. Now, of course, President Biden was a senator for a long, 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 long time. But he was also vice president under Obama for eight years in the interim. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker all ran in 2020, all failed to get any kind of meaningful traction for various reasons. You need to consider the reasons they didn't before you start putting one on the list for next time. Because remember, they were all beaten by Joe Biden, who was told by everybody he was imminently beatable last time. So if you're going to say he's imminently beatable this time, you're going to have to enunciate and articulate why that is and why that changed. What about the governor's? Used to be governor was the stepping stone to be the president, not so much lately, but we got two governors on this list. Gavin Newsom. Now, if you've spent more than two minutes reading anything at all about Gavin Newsom, he's uber, uber, uber. That's three ubers. For those of you that's Perkinsy Deutsch, he is very ambitious, uber ambitious. Anybody that's said anything about him for the last 20 years knows he's going to run for president. So that's a foregone conclusion. We'll see how that goes for him. Roy Cooper. Yeah, on paper, Roy sounds like a great candidate. He led a battleground state in North Carolina, won re-election pretty easily. A couple of things you need to keep in mind, though. He's dealt with Republican majorities, a super majority for most of it as governor. So he was mostly vetoing stuff and or making them do things that also kept him from some of his worst impulses. Also, if you've never actually listened to Roy Cooper speak, he has the charisma of a plastic ficus plant in the lobby of a nondescript government building. So for folks that look at Joe Biden and go, I really want more of that, but I'd like it less enthusiastic and more monotone, Roy Cooper's your guy. Good luck with that one. Now, uh, Sherrod Brown is also a senator. Uh, He may not even be able to keep his Ohio seat. Remember, Trump won Ohio by eight points two times in a row by 2024. That might be even worse. Sherrod Brown, uh, he's very progressive. Uh, Some folks think he may be a more palatable Bernie Sanders type. I'm skeptical. AOC. I know she gets a lot of play in the media. She's very media savvy. Uh, She's also very, very smart. She's not dumb. She passed on taking a run at Chuck Schumer wisely, despite some people thinking she should, because that would have been the absolute end of her political career. (laughs) She's not going to beat Chuck Schumer in a statewide race with her particular brand of progressive Democrat policies. She's probably not going to win a state race that way. She sure isn't going to win a national race right now. In that way, she's smart. She understands her brand. She knows what she wants to do. We can cross that one off the list anytime in the near future. And if she did, she would get absolutely wiped out. Why am I saying all this about these other candidates? Again, because I paid attention in 2020. Joe Biden put together the coalition and the Democratic Party that was necessary to get, and for those of you that have forgotten this, you might want to write it down, the most vote total in the history of U.S. presidential politics. The Democratic Party and some others ran not walk to the polls to support Joe Biden when it looked like he was dead in the water following Iowa and Nevada, got into South Carolina. The base started expanding. The base of the Democratic Party showed out and they wanted them some Joe Biden. Now, it's fair to say this is because they wanted to get Donald Trump beat. Fair enough. The specter of Donald Trump's going to be out there in 2024, too, either as a kingmaker or as a candidate himself. So, all this to say, This bench, frankly, is pretty weak. Your best bet, if you are a Democrat and you want to hold on to the White House, is Joe Biden in 2024. And I know they're probably going to get wiped out in the midterms, but that might not be a bad thing for Joe Biden in 2024 because now he gets to run against a Republican Congress and they're probably going to make a hash of things as well. I'm just telling you, turn down the noise on this. Biden's not going to run stuff. He's going to run as long as his health holds up. He's going to run unless something really catastrophic happens where the entirety of the country demands he does not do so. So just pencil it in now. Joe Biden, 2024 re-election campaign. And he'll have a good chance because he'll have the advantages of incumbency and a GOP that's going to have a hot mess on their hands dealing with Donald Trump once again. Just accept it, folks. I know it's fun to talk about what might be. This is what's going to be. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to her Tell. Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, you might have heard tell Russia is a little upset. They actually went and banned a long list of dignitaries from the UK from coming into Russia. Not that they were going to anyway. Uh, you can look at the list yourself over at The Guardian. Uh, it's pretty much the whole of the British government. Everybody from Dominic Raab, Grant Sharps, uh, Boris Johnson on here, Nicholas Sturgeon, the uh, Scottish leader. Uh, James Heppany, Nadine Dorez, Rishi Sunak, who, when he's not in uh, trouble with conspiracy stuffs, having his own issues, pretty patel. You can go on down the list. But basically, everybody in the entire U.K. government has been banned from Russia. The foreign ministry released a statement saying this is a direct quote. This list will be expanded shortly to include more of British politicians and members of parliament in it who keep inflaming the anti-Russian hysteria, push the collective West towards the use of language of threats with Moscow and are engaged in dishonest encouragement of Kiev's neo-Nazi regime. The unmitigated call of these people. Uh, Dear Russian Mr. Foreign Ministers, Lavrov and company, if you don't want people to have hysteria over Russia, stop invading countries, leveling cities, murdering innocent civilians, and doing all sorts of wicked, evil things to cover it up and lie about it. That's why they're in a hysteria, because you're murdering thousands of people. And tens of thousands of your own troops are getting killed doing it because the Ukrainians are putting up a hell of a fight because they don't want to be Russian because they're Ukrainian. Sorry, that upsets you. Deal with it. And you're paying for it in blood and treasure and a whole lot of lost prestige because right now Ukraine's making you look foolish on the world stage. You can ban all the diplomats you want. It's not going to change that one little bit. And no, Kiev's neo-Nazi regime is not a neo-Nazi regime. You are a bootlicking regime for the Oliarchs represented by Vladimir Putin, dictator of Russia, oppressor of the Russian people, and scourge to all of free peoples everywhere. Because if you don't bow the knee to him, he likes to kill you. If you're a journalist or a dissident, he'll do it with poison. And if you're Ukraine or Chechnya or Georgia or who knows where else maybe next, he'll invade it with an army and level your cities and murder women and children and rape women and commit all t- sorts of atrocities and war crimes in the process. So no, Russian foreign ministry, we're not going to be quiet about it. It's not hysteria. It's facts. You're one of the great evils of our time. The regime you represent needs to be gone from the face of the earth. And until it does, we're going to keep calling you out for the evil and the wicked you are. Go ahead and ban us from Russia. We'll honor that ban. More heard Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to her Tell Show. Let's go back overseas. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. This one's over in the UK. Uh, Georgia Gil-Hawley. Uh, how are you, my friend? Good to talk to you finally. We've been trying to want to get you on. Finally got it done. Welcome.
0: Hi, I'm doing good. Thanks. Uh, great to be here.
1: <laughs> She's a uh, wonderful writer. She's got a long list of writing credits. She also does a lot of media over in the UK. She studied at King's College and her semester abroad was over here. Went to GW for a little spell. Um Let's talk a little bit about India, if you will. The current situation in Russia and Ukraine, metaphorically and f- kind of in literal taste, India is kind of stuck in the middle here in a lot of ways. Um, we've talked about the the Western states that are doing sanctions. India is not one of them. They have longstanding ties with Russia. We have been uh, in American parlance. We've been courting them to kind of get more aligned with us over the last 20, 30 years, especially the last 15 years they're really kind of stuck in the middle between a lot of moving parts here, aren't they?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, What you said is correct. India is not sanctioning Russia. And one of the reasons they say they're not doing this, and I for one would probably believe them, is they're concerned about whether this will impact their own economy. And also they're concerned as to whether it would actually even benefit them on the world stage to sanction Russia because they're looking at, the way that the West has uh, slammed some of these financial sanctions, and Russia from SWIFT, for example, um, following the invasion of Ukraine. And they're seeing the emergence of, I guess, an alternative uh, financial order propped up by Russia and namely China, of course, as well. And they're sort of thinking, which is going to be beneficial in the long term to be involved with? Can we be involved with both of these? It's not in our strategic interests to... um, roll out the amount of sanctions that, say, the EU member states and the U.S. have so far.
1: Yeah. And these these entanglements, let's call them uh, during the last administration, the Trump administration, there was a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge deal where we allowed them to continue buying Russian military hardware, even though we had kind of kept other people from doing that because their entire military is Russia based, including their support structure. Their like it would have it would have crippled their military to not be able to do that. So we kind of turned a blind eye. like, yeah, go ahead and do that. Their power grid, for example, is completely dependent on uh, Russia technology. Uh, These are things that are not quickly fixable. These are things that would take a lot of infrastructure change. Politically, I think even President Biden, when he met with India here a couple of days ago, he kind of acknowledged it because when he was asking for, you know, don't buy oil, don't buy resources, don't get into the market, he wasn't even asking them to quit it. He was asking them to just not increase it. They did increase it anyway. Uh, there's just some hard political realities. And it comes into some really baked into the cake infrastructure stuff with India's relationship with Russia. But they also want to kind of be friends with us, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. And if you think about it from India's perspective, the things that are coming from Western and NATO allied envoys, let's say, let's say they're saying you need to remove uh, or decrease your use of Russian gas or don't raise it. They're looking at these states and thinking, okay, Germany, well, you're still using Russian gas, you're dependent on Russian gas, in fact. So why should we, um, thousands upon thousands of miles away from the theatre of conflict, why should we try and remove this? Because at the moment, it's not in our short-term interest, it's not in our medium-term interest, possibly not in our long-term interest to do that. Um, so you, you can understand from the perspective of the Indian government why they're not doing this. And I think that too many people in the West They see what's going on in Ukraine, obviously, terrible, terrible human rights violations, war crimes, massacres of civilians, this is not acceptable, Um, but what can you expect from a dictatorship that's invading a sovereign state? Um, And the problem is we see that, we're heartbroken. I'm sure many Indian people see that in the news and, and feel the same, but it doesn't necessarily change the reality when it comes to, as you're saying, India's energy supplies, India's energy grid. And I think it's hypocritical and short-sighted of Western leaders to simply say, you know, India's not doing enough. Well, are we doing enough? Have we done enough to begin with? Is it not the fact that the US hasn't been seen as a reliable partner and hasn't stood up to Russia, for example, when it invaded Crimea in 2014? And think of the whole host of, of failures. Afghanistan was an absolute fiasco. I, you know, I'm a British person, but I... Um, very much of the view that um, a world where America has more power is better than a world that Russia and China um, have the bulk of power, for example, even though we know, you know, they have their own divisions, but they're sort of, they're complementary in the fact that they can cooperate on a lot of these things and they aren't necessarily, for example, Joe Biden, when he goes to visit China or whatever, he is maybe going to bring up Oh, why haven't you um you know allowed Hong Kong to keep democracy? Um, why are you allowing these human rights violations to go on or engineering these human rights violations? Russia and China they may have their differences, but they're not um pestering each other about human rights violations um so I think that you know a world order where America has more power despite its flaws is obviously a better one, but this doesn't seem to be um, even what the u s government is operating on if you look at. Um, the Biden administration and the Obama administration that came before it, obviously with the four years of Trump in between, it's just been backpedal after backpedal. And when they have intervened, that same Libya, um, it's been disastrous. Um, they do- can't seem to strike the balance right. And you hear a lot of talk about, you know, the Quad, um, for example, um India becoming more aligned with the U.S. because both of them would like to fence in China. But when it comes to short-term interest, like I'm saying, India getting Russian gas, uh, India getting military hardware, way over half of that, I think it's over 60% of its military equipment is from Russia, basically. Um, India might like to um, be closer to the U.S. in the future, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in the position to do that right now. And as I was saying, even as someone who would prefer an American um, world as opposed to a Chinese world, a CCP world rather, um, doesn't necessarily mean that America has been executing its foreign policy in the best way possible. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's seen as a reliable partner anymore by countries like India.
1: Yeah, and something we've been hearing from our overseas friends, uh, Georgia Gilholy joining us, Young Voices contributor from the UK, uh something we've heard from our overseas friends over and over and over again i i say it constantly on this program because i'm a foreign policy person it's kind of lonely right now in america because we're kind of in an isolation that's bent until this ukraine thing happened uh foreign policy has to be uh consistent and coherent america has not been great on consistent and coherent and something we hear from overseas countries like india like southeast asia they they tell you like we don't like China. We like American more, but when we're dealing with China and we're we Russia, we at least know what we're getting. Is that the sense you get as well as like, yeah, it's probably the the worst of the two evils, but it's a consistent evil. We at least know what we're dealing with and we can plan out five or ten years. Whereas the American system, you know, we change. We have a presidential election every four years. We have congressional elections every two years. That inconsistency you're talking about. Not all of this is just morals and economics. A lot of it is they just don't really know what to expect from America right now, do they?
0: Mm -hmm. I think that some people on the left and the right do tend to maybe overemphasize stability in places like Russia and China. And we obviously know that from how chaotic the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been, um, they're not necessarily as on their toes as they could be. But I think what you're saying in general, there's truth to it because, of course, as you're saying, you know, the US is. A, uh, a representative democracy or um, a republic, however you want to, however you want to explain it. Um, basically, there are elections. Um, the center of power changes uh, regularly, and especially with the US being so divisive right now, there's no agreement. There's no bipartisan agreement on foreign policy, um, or even within party agreement on foreign policy. What you're saying is correct. Um, India and other such transition economies that are looking to develop and also to share up their security. Um, they may have many issues with places like China, especially China with India, because obviously they they share a border. They have territorial disputes, that kind of thing. Um, and both of them are sort of the emerging powers in Asia. So they have sort of regional, um, very close um regional proximity and regional aspirations that conflict with each other but in general china and russia operate in a way that is more manageable for countries like india to deal with i'm not saying they're more manageable when compared the way they might deal with their own internal populations or the way they might deal with uh, countries that they aspire to take over for example. Taiwan's an example with China obviously Ukraine is right now being invaded by Russia so it's not to overemphasize how stable and how logical they are because they're not at all they're just fundamentally different and when it comes to foreign policy dealing with states that are sort of non-aligned like India in regards to them I would say they are more predictable that doesn't mean they're a partner necessarily and it doesn't necessarily mean they're friendly but they are more predictable. And at the end of the day, um, if India, for example, is not going to be outwardly hostile, China and Russia right now are not going to be outwardly hostile back. That's not to say that they aren't hostile in other ways. China, for example, well, China and Russia, um, but China on the rise in this regard, especially um, is obviously famous for sort of espionage, intellectual property theft, relating to military stuff as well. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, going to be bosom and buddies, but they might be easier to deal with in the US. And maybe it's not fashionable to acknowledge this, but I think that the President of the United States right now in particular, all presidents obviously have their, their issues and things they might be weaker on, but <clears throat> I think his dealing with this crisis has been incredibly disappointing well actually i say disappointing i didn't expect much so not disappointing um you had him a few weeks ago quite literally calling for regime change then being praised by liberal commentators a bit doing so then about 15 minutes later the white house says no that's not what he said you know you're dealing with a war in ukraine you're dealing with real people's lives that are being destroyed um calling for the us president calling for regime change in Russia. Whether or not you agree with it, or you think it's realistic, or you think it would exacerbate the issues, whatever, that's beside the point. Calling for a regime change somewhere obviously uh, creates more aggression from that regime because they see themselves as fenced in, more fenced in, more threatened. It just doesn't even seem that the president of the United States is thinking through what he's saying, or he's even realizing the weight of his words. You know, this isn't a video game, this is real. <laughs> and you can't act like this and they go back and forth. When these things are really happening on the ground, they have real impact. Obviously, you know, everything the US president does has impact, but this is this is incredibly serious.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, if we have a lot of book on Joe Biden, because he's been in public service for 50 years here in America. And this is completely consistent with who Joe Biden is. I don't think he's going to change this late in the game. Uh, Georgia Gilholy joining us from UK. We're going to take a quick break and come back. We're going to talk about some of those allies' relationships with India. Uh, they get complicated in a hurry. What's their relationship? with places like Pakistan can't talk India without Pakistan got to talk about the EU other places like this and we're going to come back to the economy Uh, it's not just oil they're looking at coal now we know how important energy is right now more with Georgia Gilholy right after this on her tell Uh, Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Our friend Georgia Gilholy from over in the UK joining us. We're talking about India, a very important country in the world, the world's largest democracy by population, and one of those countries that's caught in the middle because they need to be friends with everybody right now, and those friends are all fighting with each other. Uh, Let's talk about a couple of their alliances that make things really complicated. We've talked about it before on this program. You cannot talk about India in the geopolitical realm without talking about Pakistan. They have long-standing conflicts over things like Kashmir, you have two different cultures, two different religions. They don't get along. They have to get along because they have a border, frenemies. Um, what's that current situation? Because Pakistan's in kind of a similar situation, especially now that they've uh, uh, set aside Amon Khan and they're changing their leadership. What do you think India's relationship with Pakistan is? Another one of those countries that's kind of caught in the middle of the world events that are going on right now.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, sort of it remains to be seen. What is going to happen with Pakistan with Imran Khan being removed? Who knows if he could make a comeback? <laughs> he's certainly been—he's certainly done done worse things and came back from it, unfortunately. Pakistan has long-standing issues with Islamist militias, violence. Um, sort of just changing the president is not going to solve its deep-rooted issues, um, which includes an intense rivalry with India, obviously, for historic reasons, for religious reasons, as you're saying. And it's interesting to see where this will go, In the future, because Pakistan, though sort of still kind of a US ally, it's basically getting all its money from China. It you know we even had, I believe, Imran Khan making excuses for China's terrible treatment of its Uyghur Muslim minority, which is just the irony is is probably possibly lost on some people. But you know, Imran Khan was a kind of playboy in London back in the day, and he sort of when he you know, came back for his political career in Pakistan, he, he got um, a new wife who's a very devout Muslim and he sort of played up this devout Muslim act. Um, and yet he is allowing China, a country that treats its Muslim minorities horrifically to walk all over him. Um, and as we're saying, India certainly has more of a rivalry with China than, than Pakistan. It does have its issues with China, but it's sliding more towards it um, in terms of spheres of influence whereas India is sort of more hostile towards China for obvious reasons. And obviously, India has more power than Pakistan. India has a thriving economy. It's a democracy. It also has deep rooted issues with uh, religious conflict, lack of education in some areas, many areas, you know, they're still in rural areas, specifically, there's um, economic struggles. However, it's definitely a more productive economy than Pakistan. And I think that while it has its issues with let's say discrimination and religious conflict I think that it's certainly less um, hindering its development than say Pakistan at the moment Um, and also it's just way bigger you know there's about one billion people in India (laughs) there's more people to do stuff with things certainly aren't getting better um, and it's interesting to see where that will possibly go in terms of China rising and Pakistan being sort of Within its economic empire, I'm not saying that's going to, you know, force Pakistan and India to go to war, but it's definitely not uh, a good sign for that relationship going forward.
1: Yeah. Talking to Georgia Gilholy, you bring up the human rights stuff. India is not on the level of what's going on with the Uyghurs or certainly not what's going on in Ukraine right now. However, there is that line of thought out there that one of the things that keeps uh, the American and the Western relationship with India a little complicated, there have been quite a lot of talk and a lot of uh, accusations against the Modi government in India, human rights type issues that they're concerned about. And there's a line of thought out there that like, Hey, we can do business with Vladimir Putin and China because they're not going to say things about that. Whereas America, when when we want arms, when we want economic deals, they're going to bring up things like some of those human rights concerns that are going on in India, which is obviously a it's a it's a big diverse country with a lot of different moving parts, a lot of religious strife, a lot of cultural strife going on. Is that part of the equation that we should pay attention to? Is that valid criticism of, hey, they like to do business with people that aren't going to call attention to some of the some of the worst aspects of what's going on in India at any given time?
0: We definitely should pay attention to it. However, we, uh, all Western governments, are hypocritical in this regard too, because as you say, many European countries are dependent on Russia for energy supplies. Basically, the entire world is, is quote unquote, dependent on China for manufacturing. Um, you know, if you take a lateral flow COVID test in the UK, more than nine times out of time, probably it's going to say made in China on it. The irony, irony of that is not lost on me, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so... While I agree that there are human rights issues in India, and this is not something we should shy away from confronting, or you know, trying to help, uh, obviously the UK government, for example, and the US government, to fund you know tons of charities that do human rights work and that kind of thing, uh, and education work in India and in many other places. However, I'm, I fail to see how sort of I don't know a British diplomat bringing up I don't know some elements of discrimination against Christians or Muslims in India as something that's going to define our relationship or something that's going to actually change India's India's policies. Um, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, talking to Georgia you know, holy. The big question now is we see a realignment going on in Europe. Uh, NATO is kind of remaking itself after a long period of not knowing what they are because they've got to face this Russian aggression. Uh, what is India's relationship with the EU wider and the UK specifically? Obviously, we know the long history of the UK and India. What's their relationship going forward? Because they do seem to be pretty focused on China and Russia. They've got some economic deals. They're working with Australia for coal and these sorts of things. What's that relationship like? Because it it seems like maybe that's becoming more of a secondary concern to India and the spheres of influence they're worried about. But the EU is changing right now. Where where do you see that relationship going forward?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily see see it getting worse, but I don't necessarily see it expanding or getting better i mean india for as you're saying historic reasons has probably closer ties definitely closer ties with the uk than it does with the rest of europe um, and there are many you know indian nationals living in the uk or descendants of them anyway and also britain trades a lot with india in terms of india's specific relationship to the rest of europe i mean europe is as you're saying right now more unified than it was before on russia and that also includes NATO at large. It sort of includes the US, Canada. Um, But the problem is that this has only happened after the invasion. It didn't happen before to prevent the invasion. For example, offering Ukraine membership, I don't know, some kind of protection not in the form of a uh, formal military alliance like NATO. I don't necessarily see India sort of wanting to jump on the bandwagon necessarily. And also India, you know, it's not like India's at risk of invasion right now. It's just sort of, seeing future strategic threats and current threats from uh, China uh, and others, Pakistan, for example. And I don't necessarily think that something like NATO uh, would help India because NATO is, is you know, it was formed uh, to target the Soviet Union, which is obviously why there's so many American troops in, say, Germany. Um, I think that we need something new. We need a strategy. And I say we, I basically mean the US because the US has all the money. Um, obviously, I believe that Britain and Europe should be involved to the extent that they can be or they're willing to be. But the focus in terms of countering China obviously needs to be in the Pacific and hopefully in the Indian Ocean. And I think that depending on what happens, you know, as the years pass, we don't know how the Ukraine conflict's going to play out. We don't know what's going to happen with China's economy, China's heading for a, a real demographic bomb as I'm sure many people are aware of. Um, you know, there are way more men than women. They're not having enough children to replace themselves, um, that kind of thing. And their economy, I believe, is shakier than it looks from the outside. Um, and I think that possibly, depending on what happens with that, India could, as I'm saying, more and more towards the idea of cooperating more formally with the US. But the problem is, as we're saying, it gets its military equipment from Russia. Russia is friendlier to China. This is, its almost as if India's position right now it can't last forever because it will ultimately have to choose if these kind of China-U.S. blocks persist um, and the divisions get ever starker as the decades pass. Um, so I think that India ultimately will have to choose, but I don't think that NATO will be that relevant, or even the the you know trade relationships or whatever with European nations will be too relevant unless they're at risk of becoming outwardly hostile because it's the U.S. that has all the money, basically. It's the U.S. that has the military power. It's the U.S. that needs to bring in India from the cold. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they would, are going to change their sense of the Ukraine conflict. Um, you know, as I was saying, India has historic Cold War ties with Russia. Putin and Modi seem to have a sort of bromance going on, if you could say that. Um, but I think this is a question that's going to keep coming up more and more and more as the years go on. Um, And I think that we really do need to focus more on the Pacific and especially Taiwan. Um, And hopefully India could be part of that, depending on how it sees itself in the coming decades. People assume that economic growth means, oh, they want to be Western and they want to be allied with the West. That's not how it works, as we know with China.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the, the other thing to watch on this is there's no version of the Ukraine war where Russia isn't lessened. And more destabilized and seen less in the world, and that's going to change okay. the dynamic too. Because, you know, if you're if you're stuck between China and America, it's nice to have Russia to talk to, and that 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 blanket may be gone for them. We'll keep talking about these issues. Uh, Georgia Gil Holy joining us. Appreciate your time. We'll definitely have you back because. Uh, India and this part of the world is not going to lessen in importance. They're going to increase in importance. So we're going to keep talking about it. We'll also get you back, talk some UK stuff. till we get you back on the program again, let folks know where they can follow you and your social media so they can keep track of you and what you've got going on. Um,
0: just follow me on Twitter at LLG Georgia if you want to find me. Yep.
1: And uh, check out her uh, <laughs> Young you. Voices. Yeah, no problem. Her Young Voices page will have a lot of her writing stuff. She's got a long list of writing credits you can go look. He also does quite a bit of UK media, which I enjoy because I don't like our cable news in America one little bit. I watch a lot of overseas stuff. Georgia Gilholi, really appreciate your time, ma'am. Great having you. We'll have you back. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you a lot. Thanks.
1: Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Right. Welcome back to Heard Telemander, Donaldson. Thank you for sticking with us. So you might have heard tell there's some stuff going on down at the Texas border. Texas governor. Uh, Abbott, has been doing some PR stunts. Uh, first, he sent a busload of migrants or illegal immigrants. There's some confusion as to what exactly those folks' status was. He put them on a bus and sent them to D.C. Also, he started doing some increased inspections at the border crossings. This is from UPI International, United Press. Uh, he's backed off it now after a couple of days because of the pushback he was getting. Uh, and he's made some deals. We're going to put air quotes around that deals. We'll touch on that in a second. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has reached his UPI a fourth and final deal with governors of Mexican border states to end increased inspections of commercial vehicles at international bridges that gridlocked commercial traffic. Abbott signed an agreement with the governor of Mexico's I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, sorry. I just don't know how to say this word. State on Friday in a move expected to bring international trade back to normal after Abbott ordered enhanced inspections at key commercial bridges caused over a week of backups that left truckers waiting for hours and sometimes days to get loads of produce, auto parts, and other girls into the U.S. At a press conference, Abbott in West Laco, Texas, uh, the governor Francisco Javier Garcia Cabrez de Vaca, I'm hoping I said that at night, said his state will continue its five-party security plan launched in 2016 that includes stationing police every 31 miles on the state highways, personality and polygraph tests for officers, that's on the Mexican side, increased salaries and offering scholarships for the children of state police officers. Abbott said the deals with Chihuahua, Cojilo, Nueve Leon, Tamaulipas, I hope I'm saying this right, I don't hobla. sorry, something I should work on probably, were quote, historic calling them examples of how border states can work together on immigration. Let's turn the noise down on this just real quick, though. Uh, these are called memorandums of understanding officially because they have to be. Uh, a state governor cannot negotiate treaties and or agreements with a foreign power. That includes foreign governors. I know you folks are going to complain. Well, they're not doing anything about it. doesn't matter. Law is still law. So these are memorandums of understanding. If you actually took them to court, they probably wouldn't hold up on the U.S. side at all, because he's extrajudicial in his authority here. Now, memorandum of memorandum of understandings, a little bit more of a gray area that's just saying we are going to do this. It's not actually legally blinding. So, yeah, this is a lot of theater. And let's be clear why this stopped. Uh, Governor Abbott was getting a lot of pressure from people on his own side because he was screwing with his base, which is the businesses of Texas. They didn't like this. It was screwing up the economy. It was screwing up commerce. PR stunts for political hits are always well and good until people start losing money, especially if it's people on your side that's in your base that use that money to donate to your campaign. Because, by the way, you're running for governor and reelection this year. Aren't you, Governor Abbott? So let's just be clear on why this stopped his own people that have his ear got him to stop it. Also, this PR stunt of sending the migrants or the illegal immigrants, however they were, to Washington, D.C., take the buzzword off it. I don't like any government official using the official power of their office to use human beings as pawns. That's not right. I don't care what the issue is. There's a better way to do it without using human beings as pawns. If you think that's good, if you think that's okay, if you think being used that way is fantastic, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Don't use human beings and don't use the power of the government to force those human beings to have to do stuff like that. And if you think there's an exception to that just because they're illegals or because they're migrants or because of whatever other reason, then you're not being consistent. Now you got an integrity problem. Treat them like human beings first. Find ways to make your policy points without doing that. I don't care if he's a Democrat or a Republican or a purple hippopotamus. The role of government is not to use people as pawns. It's to govern people. It's to keep people safe. It's to treat people with respect. It's to keep those people's rights up front and foremost, and I don't see any of that going on when we start doing PR stunts. So fight your corner in policy, stick your politics to where it belongs, and don't do stupid stunts, regardless of which side you're on, regardless of what issue it is, because it's still going to be a stupid stunt under all the buzzwords. More Hertel right after this. (music) Ah, tell Show. Welcome back. I'm Andrew Johnson. You know, we always try to end on a good or a happy note. This is a good one. I like this one a lot. Weatherford Couple. Uh, this is up from Fox 5 NBC News. For most people, an RV symbolizes a road trip or a vacation. For veterans who have received RVs from Operation Texas Strong in 2021, Those RVs are home now. This is from back at the beginning of the year, but I love this story so much. We are tired of seeing homeless veterans on the street, Bobby Crussinger said. Crussinger and his wife Peggy started Operation Texas Strong in 2021 and last year to give veterans experiencing homelessness a roof over their head and a chance to get back on their feet. The couple plans to keep the donations going all through 2022 and hopefully beyond. The Weatherford couple was inspired by Peggy's father a Vietnam veteran who lamented seeing other fellow veterans living on the street. Once you're on the street after that, it gets a little bit easier, she said. You've got the oomph to be able to do what you need to do, eat, get a job, and do what you got to do, but it all starts with getting them off the street, she said. This is Peggy. In past years, the Crust Singers and Operation Texas Strong had donated RVs to 68 veterans. Each RV comes with a donation of linens and home goods to get them started. Everything is donated by the community. We want people to realize if you pull together We'll be able to get stuff done, Bobby Crussinger said. Peggy said she wishes her father was here to see it. I think he'd be proud and hoping. She said, I think he would be quite happy to see a lot of people pulling together to do this. If you have a roadworthy RV or home goods to donate, there's contact information in this piece at NBCDFW.com. You can also go to the Operation Texas Strong Facebook page, but in the search block should come right up. Worthy charity. Good idea. You got old stuff you want to help somebody out with. Always help a veteran out. It's always something that you can be proud of later on. That'll do it for Herdtel on this Monday. We got an exciting week of programs going on. If you missed anything from last week, Twice on Sunday, those are the clip shows from the five interviews from the previous week. Make sure you check that out on all the platforms. Make sure you're subscribing. YouTube has various playlists on there. Twice on Sunday has a playlist. Good Talks, just the interview portions. That has a playlist, and, of course, all the brand-new weekday episodes of Heard Tell. There's also 36 of the deep dive into the podcast. They're longer form. They talk about a lot of very important issues. We've got some new ones we're working on. We're really proud, excited to bring those to you here soon. We're working to make them very special. We want to make sure we never waste your time. It's the most precious thing you give us. We're going to do that with all the various things we do here at Heard Tell. So Make sure you're subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Podcasts. Whatever platform you use, make sure you're doing that on YouTube. Also, uh, Big Talker Network, our radio partner, Facebook page—they have all of the episodes on there. On the video page, you can watch them. Brand new app coming out for the Big Talker Network brings Heard Tell directly to you, plus the podcast for Heard Tell, plus all the other great programming on Big Talker Network. Make sure you're looking for that in the app store uh iphone and android both going to be available real real soon looks sharp y'all yeah, well, did a lot of good work on that be looking out for that okay so until we see you next time hopefully tomorrow morning if not sooner if you're watching a back episode we hope you and yours are well we hope you're well fed we'll talk to you tomorrow on Hurtel. all the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com So
0: much